0: So John switched the dial on the, on the helicopter's radio to the Mayday station and called Mayday, and he called, and he called, and he called, uh, no response.
1: From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature. Real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Erin Jones. This time, what goes up must come down. Before we get into our story, we're in the middle of our winter fund drive. And we're asking you to support the podcast. You can do that by donating a few bucks. Just click donate at our website, humannaturepodcast.org. We'll send you a sticker with our logo when you do. And if you can give $25, we'll send you a t-shirt. If you can't make a donation, that's okay. Instead, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or share an episode on social media. It helps people find us. Thank you. Bruce Smith is a wildlife biologist. Over his career, he clocked a lot of hours in helicopters, surveying animals in remote patches of the Rocky Mountains. It can be a dangerous job.
0: During my career, I had seven different friends and colleagues who were wildlife biologists or wildlife pilots, all of whom didn't come back from missions. It's one of the most dangerous types of flying that there is, civilian flying. Well, starting in the 1990s, the Office of Aviation Services, which regulates all federal flying by employees, initiated 15-minute welfare checks. So whenever you're on a flight, every 15 minutes you call in. You give your status, and you give your position.
1: But that rule didn't exist in 1980, when Bruce was working on the Wind River Indian Reservation in central Wyoming.
0: It was a very cold, sub-zero morning when I drove to Thermopolis from where I was living in Lander. I drove there in the dark, as did my flying companion that day, Raleigh Friday, who was the tribal game warden. We met there, and then the helicopter we were going to be flying in came in from Grable, and we took off to survey elk, deer, and bighorn sheep through the Owl Creek Mountains.
1: Bruce and Raleigh had worked together before and knew each other well, but neither had met John, the pilot. The three of them would spend the morning flying over an ocean of snow-capped peaks, nowhere near towns or roads. In order to finish the survey and make it back to the airport, they'd have to stop and refuel somewhere in those mountains. So they loaded 40 extra gallons of fuel onto the helicopter and took off just as the sun was coming up.
0: The mountains there can be really rough flying, a lot of strong winds, unpredictable winds, So we have to pick our days, but we had high pressure. So usually under high pressure, we have calmer air, and it was a beautiful blue sky day, and we'd just gotten about a foot of snow, so it was an ideal situation.
1: The new snow would make it easier to spot animals and their tracks from the sky. After just a couple of hours, they had finished counting elk in what Bruce calls the lower country, the valleys below 8,000 feet.
0: We were now going to fly up on a high ridge called Trail Ridge, and we were going to sit down on top of the ridge, refuel the helicopter. We'd have another two hours of fuel to do our bighorn sheep surveys because the sheep went up at 10 to 12,000 feet. And then with a, a helping tailwind, we would scoot back to Thermopolis and hopefully make it before we were out of gas. Well, we were about to head up, on top of Trail Ridge to find that landing spot when all of a sudden our pilot, John, plopped the helicopter down in about a foot of snow down along Crow Creek. And uh, Raleigh and I kind of looked at each other like, hmm, this isn't the plan, what's up here? And John just said, hmm, I smell something, I want to I wanna go take a look. I had never flown with John before and I'm always wary when I fly with a new pilot. He got out of the helicopter and went back and checked for a while, got back in, buckled back into his harness, put his helmet back on, and didn't say anything. So I got on the intercom and I said, what's up? And he said, false alarm. I just thought there was something, uh, something awry and everything seems to be fine. So he uh, throttled it up and the snow whirled around us like lemon meringue and uh, off we went.
1: As the helicopter climbed toward the top of the ridge, the air became more and more turbulent.
0: The helicopter started swinging left and right from the winds, and we could feel our stomachs a little bit. We were getting up drafts, and then the bottom would fall out, and all of a sudden, he just turned the helicopter and left the ridge and went right back over Crow Creek. And uh, one of us said, what's, what's the problem? And he said, there's no way we can land up there. So there's just too much wind. We're either going to make an untidy landing or worse. So he recommended that we find a place a little bit lower off the very crest of the ridge where the wind was strongest to try and land. And he pointed the nose of the helicopter towards a little spot that was about 200 feet down below the top of Trail Ridge. And there was a little bit of a perch there where, yep, sure enough, you could probably put a helicopter in. So we circled over it, and we looked at it, and he said, what do you think? And I said, good for me. I looked at Raleigh, and Raleigh didn't say anything, and so we sat down there.
1: They stepped out into the blinding snow on the side of the ridge, refueled the helicopter, and buckled up to fly again. Usually, helicopter pilots take off by pointing the nose down and gliding near the ground to gain momentum. But Bruce noticed that this time, John didn't do that.
0: And I don't know if it was because the ridge was so steep next to us, or because he felt something, the wind pushing the helicopter, or maybe he lost visibility for a moment because of all the snow that was stirred up. But he just kept going straight up. And we were going to keep going up I assume until he tilted the helicopter but we didn't keep going up because we lost power and plopped right back to the ground so that's how we ended up snowbound at 10,000 feet on January 20th about 12 miles from the closest residence or road there was a thermometer just in front of my door and at 1130 It read 12 degrees above zero. In Lander, it was supposed to be 20 below that night at 5,400 feet of elevation, and we were at 10,000. So this night, it was probably going to be 30 below, where we ended up losing the power in the helicopter.
1: Without leaving his seat, John tried to start the helicopter again. No luck.
0: He got out. He went back and started tinkering around back where the engine is. Raleigh and I got out and went back there and asked him a couple of pointless questions. And he said, load up, let's see if we can make her go. And so we got back in and buckled up and and he uh, hit the ignition switch and it tried and tried and it would not fire. And so I looked at him and I said, what's the problem? And he said, fuel pump. And uh, Raleigh said, you can't fix it? (laughs) And he said, not here. In fact, it probably can't be fixed, probably has to be replaced. No one was going to know that we were disabled where we were, and they wouldn't be expecting John back until probably dark. I wasn't expected back at my office because I was going to do more field work that day. No one would worry about me until my wife called that night, and Raleigh was kind of in the same situation. So no one was going to come looking for us.
1: It wasn't long before they spotted the contrail of a jet in the sky. They knew that sometimes airlines tune into the Mayday station.
0: So John switched the dial on the on the helicopter's radio to the Mayday station and called Mayday. And he called, and he called and he called. Ah uh, no response.
1: Coming up after the break, Bruce, Raleigh, and John have to decide stay with the helicopter and wait for help, or descend the mountain to look for help. You're listening to Human Nature. We'll get back to Bruce shortly, but we're pausing to ask you to support Human Nature with a donation of maybe five or ten bucks. When you donate, just click the button at humannaturepodcast.org. We'll send you a sticker. And if you can give twenty five dollars or more, we'll send you our popular Heather Blue T shirt with the human nature logo on the back. Hello. Shannon Steineker. Hey Aaron
2: Jones. How, How are I'm... you? You have a baby. I do. He turned a month old yesterday, so it's you know, obviously very exciting over here. We're just partying all the time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So
1: Shannon's a friend of mine, and maybe that played into her decision to listen to and support human nature,
2: but she says there's more to it than that. My reason for donating um, is because I feel like as a society, we're super disconnected from nature, and for me, like as a little girl, I loved being outside outside got disconnected from that. Uh, I feel like for 15 years, um, life was just boring. It was monotonous. I was dealing with anxiety, depression, I got really unhealthy. Um, and it wasn't until I met someone who shared all their stories of nature and being out hiking and camping. And it just really inspired me to get back out there. And for me, like it completely changed my life. In my mind, I, I would hope that this show through their exciting stories and heartfelt story sad funny that other people could either be connected to nature or reconnected and I would just hope that it could change people the way it changed me I literally like little baby Clyde was just you know up every two hours in the middle of the night and so that's like what I did I listened to the entire series it was awesome I was almost like, okay, Clyde, aren't you, like, hungry? It's 3 in the morning. No, we have another podcast? To to? <laughs>
1: <laughs> maybe this show helps you feel more connected to nature, and maybe it's encouraged you to go on an adventure of your own. Right now, you can help us bring you more stories by making a donation in any amount at humannaturepodcast.org. That's humannaturepodcast.org. Every Dollar Makes a Difference, and Caroline Ballard is here to help me thank everyone who's given so far.
2: Right. We've heard from all over, including Therese Okraku from Kirkland, Washington, and Rachel Finelli from right here in Laramie, Wyoming.
1: You can actually hear Rachel help tell a feel-good story in episode 32. We also want to thank Chris Natali from New York City, and Michael McGregor from Johns Creek, Georgia. Also, Trevi Thomas from Fredericksburg, Virginia, and Jean-Marie Pina from Farmingdale, New York. And a shout-out to Jacob Carson from Kashmir, Washington, and Casey Bishop from Rush Springs, Oklahoma. Plus, Claudia Wagner from Vancouver, Washington, who says the show's logo is magnificent. That's the image on the sticker we'll send to you when you make a donation. And it's also on the t-shirt you can get with a gift of $25. If you'd like a shout out on an upcoming episode, let us know when you make your donation at humannaturepodcast.org. That's humannaturepodcast.org. And if you can't give cash, you can give some love by helping other people find our show. Please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or share an episode on social media. This is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Aaron Jones. We left Bruce, Raleigh, and John on top of a ridge in the Wind River Mountains, trying to call Mayday. John radioed the nearest airports. Again, nothing. They figured the impact must have damaged their radio equipment. Bruce suggested they try to dig out the antenna, but if they broke a sweat in the freezing cold, they'd risk getting hypothermia. So they couldn't fix the helicopter, they couldn't call for help, and the sun was already at its highest point in the sky.
0: We had about five more hours of daylight, and that was it. I had the maps on my lap. Raleigh and I started looking at the maps. We were plotting how we would get out of here. And John saw that, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I really don't want to stay here tonight. So he said, well, wait a minute. He says, we got got survival gear on board. Let me go get that. And every helicopter and every fixed-wing flight doing this kind of work in the winter is supposed to have survival gear, snowshoes, sleeping bags, water and food, and usually flares. So he got out, went back to the storage compartment, which is in the boom of the helicopter, came back with a sad look on his face. All that was back there, besides his little toolbox, was an oily blanket and one flare gun. There were no snowshoes, oh no blankets, no sleeping bags, nothing. Nothing. The only water we had was a quart that i had in my backpack and the only food that we had was my lunch raleigh hadn't packed lunch he had left it back in his truck and john didn't have any water or food and i said well there's no way i'm staying here i was convinced if it went down to 30 below and we had no protection there is no way we could survive the night John protested because he was responsible for the mission as a pilot. Said, nope, we all have to stay together. We all have to stay with a helicopter. And my response was, yep, we all have to stay together, but I'm not staying at the helicopter. I'm getting out of here. And Raleigh was in complete agreement with me.
1: Bruce and Raleigh knew of a ranch owned by the Duncan family about 12 miles from the bottom of the ridge. To make it there, they'd first have to descend about 3,000 feet in deep snow.
0: We decided we would alternate breaking trail and John could follow behind because he was a pretty big guy. He was like 6'3". He had been an LAPD pilot as I remember and was not in the best of shape. So we would make it easiest for him by him following.
1: Bruce went first, plowing down the mountain.
0: And I was trying to figure out the best way to deal with this snow, whether I just tried to bowl my way through it, pushing with my thighs, or to try and pick up a foot and plunge it back in because it was always knee-deep and sometimes it was up to waist-deep. It was a struggle. The only thing that was helping was gravity because it was all downhill. And so then Raleigh was next and then John was after him, following in the trench that I was making. And we hadn't gone but 20 minutes And I heard Raleigh call. He said, you better come back here. So I went back up to where he and John were. And John was bent over and he was grabbing the back of his thigh, his hamstring. He cramped up. He had these severe cramps in his, I think it was his left hamstring. By now, we had gotten into the trees, and I saw a place where a tree had fallen down, so I went over and brushed the snow off, and we helped John over there, and he got to sit down, and then he massaged his thigh for a while, and then he said, Yeah, I think I'm okay now. I'll be all right. Well, we went just a little bit farther, maybe another 10 minutes. The same thing happened, and this time, both of his thighs had cramped up. He couldn't go. I mean, they were excruciating from what he was relaying to us, so... He started um, massaging one thigh, and I said, if you don't mind, I'll help with the other one. And so I did that, and he started to feel a bit better as the Charlie horse or cramps went out of it. And this went on, and every few minutes we would have to stop again. And not only that, but he was panting and really wheezing and was having a really difficult time with the high elevation, the thin air, and the snow. He kept cramping, we kept massaging, we thought at any minute he was (laughs) going to keel over and have a heart attack, and we were making horrible time. We had dropped down a few hundred feet by then, and he had suggested maybe we should go back to the helicopter, and I'm going like, we're not going all the way back up there, that's going to be a struggle, and there's no advantage to being in the helicopter, we know why we left, we got to keep going. We got down almost to Crow Creek where the willows were lining the stream. And I said, Raleigh, we need to make a plan. He said, I know. And we knew if we went two miles down Crow Creek uh, to the south, there was an old cattleman's cabin there, just a little shack. But it had a wood stove in it. Raleigh had been in it before. He said, that'd be a good place you know we could get a fire going. and, And hopefully we can make it there before John Conk's out on us. And I said, well, I'll tell you what why don't i go ahead and go on to the duncan place we know that they've got snow machines i'll come back with the snow machines and i'll bring a sled and we can bring john out on that so that's the plan i went ahead going as fast as i could down the road i got down to where the road made the turn to the west i couldn't see the cabin but i knew it would be just beyond And I kept thinking, I hope they can make it here, I hope they can make it here, because here I am taking off on my own. And I've left Raleigh this responsibility to take care of someone who's not doing well. It was cold. It was really cold. I had a beard then, and I was iced from ear to ear, and my mustache, everything was iced up.
1: And by then, it was getting dark.
0: This is the time of night when things come out, like mountain lions. And this was an area with lots of mountain lions because there were quite a few deer and elk there.
1: So Bruce picked up the pace to elude phantom mountain lions, watching the long strip of snow ahead. And then?
0: In the distance, I heard this faint drone. And as it got a little bit louder, I realized it wasn't a helicopter. It wasn't that pulsing sound that you get from helicopter blades. It was like the drone of an airplane engine. And it got closer and it got closer. And then as I looked back to the east about where the cabin was, the sky was suddenly illuminated in bright red. And the trail from a flare was plummeting toward earth. I actually started going faster. I wanted to make it to the Duncan Ranch before they got to me. And I didn't quite get there. The helicopter came with a searchlight following my tracks, landed, and before long, I was in uh, the back seat with John and Raleigh. They had made it down to the cabin well after dark, and John was all in. There was a single coil spring bed there with no mattress, and he flopped down. Raleigh thought that was probably it for him. The heart attack was coming on, and Raleigh saw that the stove was workable. It was in good condition, but there was no firewood. So he went out to the horse corral, started tearing rails off in the horse corral, the smaller ones, and then breaking them up. And he used that for firewood and got a fire going in the stove.
1: Just then, Raleigh and John heard the plane and ran outside.
0: John fired the flare, and that's when the plane radioed back to bring a helicopter to rescue us. And before long, I was in uh, the back seat with John and Raleigh, and uh, we were headed back to Thermopolis. It took us like 20 minutes to get there, as though nothing had ever happened. Except, at that point, the owner of the flying service, who was flying the helicopter started chewing us out for not staying with a helicopter that had gone down and was giving john in particular a pretty good butt chewing for not having stayed with a helicopter that's the protocol you don't leave you stay with a helicopter well he didn't say anything to me and it's probably just as well he didn't because what was going through my mind was so like where was the where was the survival gear where were the snowshoes and the sleeping bags and the extra water and food And I vowed at that moment, the next time I got in a helicopter, and every time after that, I would make sure there was survival gear on board.
1: Our storyteller was Bruce Smith. His book is Stories from a Field, Adventures with Wild Things in Wild Places. It tells this and other exciting stories from his career as a wildlife biologist. I'm Erin Jones. The Human Nature team is Caroline Ballard, Alana Elder, August Law, Annie Osborne, Anna Rader, and Micah Schweitzer. Special thanks to Rachel Leith for helping to record this episode, and to consulting producer Camila Kudelska. The theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media.
0: It's human nature,